You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to trash since everybody welcome to the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema and it is love month here at the ggtmc we're here to eat roast beef wink wink nudge nudge (laughs) and uh talk about copious amounts of love in different ways and shapes and form and i'll be curious by the end of this if we'll ever be able to say love any way different (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> kind of like Midnight Ride. <laughs> <laughs> but Sammy and Will, and, uh, we're here to discuss uh, films this no, over the next four weeks, counting this week, or the next three weeks, counting this week. We are um, talking about films that have some form of love in them, whether it be bromance, admiration, love of a weapon, or just pure love. And uh, this could have went a bunch of different ways. I actually, Will, at first, I've got to be honest with you, I was going to go the transgressive way because there's a <laughs> lot of films. I mean, I just recently watched one, right? To Teton or whatever. That was That's a oh, love film. That's a, it's about love. It's, listen, at its core, it's a beautiful love story. It is. A bizarre and transgressive is all hell. But uh, anyway, there's so many ways you can go with love. I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go the transgressive route. I'm just gonna cover a couple that I want to do. But we're starting this week with a big one that's been on our list for a long time. And uh it's one of the ones kind of like the Warriors, where it just kind of keeps getting talked about uh every now and then and about how we feel about it and stuff. Uh, and that is John Carpenter's Starman from uh was it 1984? Yeah, 84. So it's 40 years old. Wow. <laughs> How does that make you feel? That's crazy, man. <laughs> 40 years old. Yes. yes. This film is 40 years old. <laughs> uh, ugh. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, it kind of blows my mind sometimes. Yeah. When I was watching it, I remember thinking, this is 40 years old. And uh, so, yeah, John Carpenter back on the show. So looking forward to talking about this one. 
Um, I don't really have anything else. I don't, I, oh, I do have some feedback. I do have some feedback, but, uh, yeah, we hope you guys will stick around for all of love month. Cause I think you're going to enjoy some of the things we got coming down the proverbial love tube. That's right. <laughs> uh, this one, uh, I got an email from Chris. He says, as a fan of your show, one of my favorite aspects of it is when you get into broader discussions of a career or a trend in the film industry, etc." So I'd like to offer up a discussion point. Which actor do you think has been, has the best record? Quote unquote. I guess by that, I mean the most consistent filmography of quality movies. If I had to pick for my own personal taste, I'd probably go with James Stewart. Thanks guys. And take care. P.S. Not counting John Cazal. (laughs) That's good. John Cazal is, uh, he's arguably, he arguably batted a thousand. So, you know, he had the Godfather, Dog Day Afternoon, Deer Hunter, uh, you know, uh, something else. I think two or three other ones, and uh, all of them are great to very good films. So I think Conversation, he's in that. So uh, there we go. Will, what do you think? Uh, do, who do you think, for you, overall, has the best record? This is a tough question, but I feel like we've kind of discussed it before. It is a tough question. I don't know that I have an answer. I wish I had time <clears throat> to prepare, right? Because, I mean, I'll be honest, my first instinct was look at a few Asian actors like Tony Lung Chuai or Song Kang Ho, who we mentioned last week. Guys that tend to work with great filmmakers consistently um, and don't tend to make a lot of uh, junky stuff, right? We can't include Kazal, unfortunately. He batted a 1,000. Sadly, his career was short. Jimmy Stewart does have a great career, a lot of great stuff in there. That's a tough one. I'd need time to think about that. You know, it's hard for a career. If it's hard to have the combination of, I guess we could almost go with like median score out of 10. Like if we look at some of the actors we just said, or, or you know, who are some Hollywood guys that tend to pick good stuff like Bale or um, uh, Gosling generally picks pretty interesting stuff. Um it's a tough road to talk about because you – so here's the tricky thing for any actor, I think. You have to stay relevant at the same time, pick stuff. Yeah. I think yeah. If, if I had to pick an actor of the modern era, I think uh, – because I've been thinking about it while you've been talking. I think I'd have to go Daniel Day-Lewis maybe. He's probably the guy, right? Like I think that's – yeah, as you say that – He's the guy that really takes his time in picking his projects. And and is willing to step away, right? Like, I mean, he quote unquote, quote unquote retired. Absolutely. And but th- he's the guy who's, I don't think he has a blemish on his resume, right? Not that I can think of off the top of my head. There might be something, but, um, you know, most actors, even the great actors, um, you know, you got to, again, I have to say this, you have to stay relevant to keep working. So people mm-hmm. can, you can make fun of, I can make fun of Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, oh. uh, walk in, yeah, walk in. Anybody, I can make fun of those guys all day long. But the truth is, if you don't stay relevant, you don't keep working. Yeah, and uh, that's just the way it is. Like you, you know, maybe if you're lucky enough, you can rest on your laurels and and do stuff or make enough money. I guess it depends on your lifestyle and everything else. Uh, Gosling's a good example. He kind of plays both sides of the park quite a bit. Clooney, Pitt. Yeah, Clooney and Pitt are good examples. They'll do the big film and then they'll do the smaller film. Yep. You know, I I think anything's uh I think it's all a gamble though. 
um, especially in modern film, film, it seems like it seems like during the film factory years, it seems like consistency could be a little bit more, um, I don't know. You could hit it a little bit more. James Stewart's a really good example. I can't really think of anything I've ever really seen Jimmy Stewart in that he's bad in. No. Off no. the top of my head. Hackman probably, well, he did a couple, but by and large, median score, he'd be pretty good. Yeah, Hackman would be good, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a really tough question. He's done a few turds, but not too many. Toshiro Mifune, maybe, but he's done some, he did some weird shit, too, sometimes. He's got a good resume. Uh, Tetsuya Nakadai. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Pretty good body of work. I'm not sure he did too many turds. I mean, you can't even say, like, the greats. You can't even say, like, Jackie Chan, because Jackie Chan's done some stuff that's like, ugh. You know. He's done some turds. Yeah, he has. He has. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, it, you know you, again, you're you're trying to stay relevant, right? So, um, yeah, I'm I, Sean Connery, maybe? No, Connery did some turds. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, again, I don't, I don't know. That's a tough one. James Stewart's a good one, though, Chris. I gotta, I gotta hand you that one to you. I'm trying to think of classic actors too, like Jimmy Stewart and stuff. Spencer Tracy had a pretty good run. That's a pretty good one. Yeah, that that, that one I could argue is pretty solid. Oh, I don't know. Uh, you could argue Charlie Chaplin, maybe, maybe. Um, I don't know about Keaton. He kind of fell off a little bit, but you could definitely argue. Chaplin, George C. Scott, maybe? No, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. We got but he's again pretty good resume. Uh, what about um, you know who might uh, maybe Lino Ventura? Uh, what's oh, his yeah, name? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll tell you what. Uh, Marcello Mastroianni might have a pretty damn good top to bottom. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's that's a good one out of Italy. I'm trying to think of countries too. Um, I'd, I'd be. I haven't seen all of Mario Adorf's work, but it seems like he could be in there. John Maria Volante, maybe. Yeah, Take yeah. Seriously. Yeah, yeah. He was kind of kind of a shorter career, but yeah, it's still enough. I think he did forty something, forty or fifty films. So. And he just, I can, I can't see him doing turds just to do them. Yeah. He was politically minded, right? As a as an actor, and I think he probably would have avoided doing like, I don't know that he did like a sex comedy like everyone else was doing in Italy at the time. He might have. I know his work more from the 60s and 70s, uh, more serious-minded stuff. It is interesting, though, that some of the great actors of the 70s, you know, to maintain relevance, they would, you know, do what they had to do to, you know, stay. I think of Dustin Hoffman, who's done some pretty crazy stuff. Uh, oh, yeah. One of the great examples, uh, and although he's not considered one of the great actors of the 70s, but one of the always one of the most interesting careers to me is the ups and downs of John Travolta, <laughs> who is highs and lows. Yeah. Yeah. He's got highs and he's got lows and uh, he's got some in-betweens. He's all over the place though. I mean, I, he just, you never know what you're going to get with him. You could get a great performance. You could get the uh, worst film of the year. You just never know. So just kind of depends. Um, but this is a good question. This is a very good question. Some would argue maybe somebody like Ed Harris who He's I, got a few words in there too, but great actor. Yeah, I like Ed. I like Ed in the movies. I don't like Ed's one of those guys that I don't like an in interview. It was that History of Violence interview that he did at TIFF or one of the film festivals where he really kind of turned me sideways with his. <laughs> very serious? <laughs> yeah, he just kind of got full of himself, and I was just kind of like, ugh. But I like Ed Harris. I think he's really great. Yeah, he I think he doesn't uh, play to his strengths enough, though. No, I agree with you. 
he's got uh he could have a hell of a career as a, a heavy in a lot of stuff. Was, so. I think he was born maybe 10, 15 years or got famous 10, 15 years too late. Yeah, maybe. Seventies, man, he would have been oof, something. Yeah. I'm 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 trying to think of uh African American actors pound for pound. That's a that's an interesting one too. Even talking about the ones that came out of black exploitation stuff, you can't really and even, How much of the hamstrung by opportunities? Yeah, even the great ones like Denzel and and um I mean he's probably got a pretty good pretty good resume. His, but his resume's pretty good. A few The problem the problem back. with his stuff is some of it's just too standard. Yes, yes, yes. Like yes. it's just too, reach the creative highs. Yeah, it's just too too safe for that's lack of a better word. One. Yeah. I I think for my money I might say John Maria Volante is up there, man. I'm looking through and yeah, 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 it's a pretty good one. You know, Jeffrey Jeffrey Wright, who just recently got nominated for an Oscar, he's a pretty good uh, guy to talk about. He seems to be, a, he's good in just about everything he's ever in. Man, I really love him. I'm re- It's American Fiction, I believe, is the film, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm real excited to see that. I'm, I, I love Wright, and uh, that'll be good. He is the master of wearing the gl- glasses on the tip of his nose. Down his no- yes. He yes. is the absolute master. Nobody can compete with Jeffrey Wright. You're right. <laughs> Nobody. Not not in that realm. So I can tell you this, 100%, if there's an actor who can wear their glasses on the tip of their nose and look over the tip of their glasses better than Jeffrey Wright, I don't know who it is. Show me. <laughs> yeah, you got to show me. You got to show me. Uh, all right. Let's, uh, that, that's pretty much the feedback for this week. Thanks, Chris. We appreciate that. We always appreciate talking points. Mm-hmm. Um, although that one is not easy, buddy. No. I have to say. But let's get into uh, what we've been watching. What have you been up to? Uh, not much. I just talk about two things. Like I said, NFL playoffs got me wrapped up on weekends. I watched two things this week. Uh, one of which I'm going to talk about now. It's been a long time coming. It was very buzzy in our circles. And I thought, man, i got to see this. Um, and that's the Finnish film Sisu. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen this yet either. I, I've heard uh, good and well, no, I've not heard bad, but I've heard good and middling. Let's put it that way. Well, I like, I want to say it's Yalmary Helander. Not oh. Yalmary, it's Yalmary because the way, yeah, it is yes. Yalmary. Yalmary, be Jalander. Yeah, so he's a, he's a good filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Our exports is a good film. It is. Very uh, stylish, very interesting. Very stylish. I have to tell you, I didn't really care for this film too much. See, this is what I've heard. See, this is, it's really, it, it really is a this or that, so Man, to speak. It just, it felt like one of those, like, people, you know, I think, okay, I'm okay with like 88 minutes of killing Nazis. But something about this film, despite it being stylish and violent and rompy, just felt very empty. And, and I don't mean like there wasn't any sort of, spiritual discovery. It just, I, I listen, we just talked about lethal Panther last week. <laughs> this film just left me so unsatisfied. It felt to me like him really riff. You know what it felt like to me, man? It felt like just him riffing on like Tarantino and, and guy Ritchie, like it, like a, like a f- first time filmmaker doing that. I, I don't know. I just, I didn't really care for it. And I thought it was a mistake and I hope I'm not putting my foot in my mouth here because I didn't see an audio option for finish. There might have been. But it feels like they shot it in English. 
I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you know, it, yeah, it got a theatrical release, which I was kind of surprised by. It was a co-production of the States in Finland. So, yeah. you know, premiered at the Midnight Madness Festival here, right? But, man, I started off with it. I wanted to really like this. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, it feels, like, it feels like a Midnight Madness kind of film. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But I... Man, I started off, I was like, I gave this thing three stars on Letterboxd. And I went back. I didn't even feel good about that. I was like, no, this is like two, two, like two and a half stars max. Yeah. Right down the, right down the middle. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's fine. I don't begrudge anyone that likes it, but, and everyone's good. It's weird. Like everything's well done. I don't really know what the vibe of the movie is. I haven't read about it. I haven't watched it. I've seen a little bit of a trailer. It feels like it's World War II, but it also feels like it's kind of Mad Maxi in a weird way. Totally Fury Roadie, Leone, Tarantino. You think, wow, it's all that and it's finished and it's killing Nazis. Great. Yeah, sounds good on paper. Yeah. Sounds good on paper, man. And I can't point out much that, like, you know, violence is fun and wet and wild, but just didn't do it for me, man. Hmm. It felt like. I don't know. It just did again fudge for breakfast, but like empty fudge. I don't chocolate bunnies for breakfast. Yeah, maybe maybe it's a maybe it's one of those films that's kind of like a mood film. Like maybe it's a mood film. I don't know. You know how sometimes you come across something like that? Yeah, yeah, you do, man. You totally do, but maybe not though. I just yeah, and it's funny. I saw Davy, our boy Davy Alcock, also gave it two and a half. So I felt kind of better about that because some of our other friends really loved it. So I was kind of yeah. I mean, I, I can tell you, it's definitely all over the place though. Because uh, for everybody that loves it, I see just as many people that don't love it. And nobody hates it, but uh, it's either middling or they love it. So I didn't hate it, but definitely didn't love it. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to love it, but I didn't. Gotcha. Um, I don't know when or if I'll ever see it. (laughs) I got to be honest with you. (laughs) Wait. It'll it'll probably just be one of those ones that, you know, I have to be in the mood and it'll have to be available. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. It's a yeah. good, good looking film. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, next up, the other thing I watched this week was one I I didn't see when it first came out, and I don't generally like Bloomhouse's stuff, but I do like uh, John Hyam's work. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I like Kevin Williamson. I really like John Hyams. He's really the the draw for me, and it's uh, sick from I think twenty twenty two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw this. I saw this. It was during the height of COVID. This got released uh, straight to streaming. Yeah. Was it ever? I like Gideon Adlin, I got to say. I'd seen Gideon Adlin in Cockblockers. Mm, yes. I thought she was she was cute in that. She was good in that. Um, yeah, I like her a lot. Yeah, 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 for sure. She's, uh, she's good. So this film, uh, it's a home invasion slasher film. I have to say, uh, this was about a three and a half star from here, like a seven, seven point five, maybe using our score. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I quite liked it. I think it's Hyams and Williamson together. I think Hyams Universal Soldier films are really lean and mean. They're really muscular. They're violent. They're brutal. They're punishing. His sensibilities as an action filmmaker lend themselves really well to a horror film, yeah. especially one like this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really well shot. Yeah, it's got some uh, pretty great fight sequences or action sequences as well. Really desperate fight sequences and hand-to-hand stuff. And not overly choreographed, just desperate, down and dirty. Um, The violence is really punishing. 
uh, it's propulsive. It's like 88 minutes. Um, it really, there's a really beautifully shot moment with like someone lit on fire, kind of a TCM weird moment. Uh, scored really incredibly, man. I love the score for this film, but here's the problem I have. And I'm going <laughs> to tread a little lightly with this. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got you. I don't want to misconstrue. Um, I think I know where you're going. I think you probably do. I don't want anyone to misconstrue what my stances are on certain things. This is a COVID pandemic set home invasion horror film. Mm-hmm. You feel it early on. And let's just shout out Nima Fakara, Fakara, the this the uh, composer. Did a great job, right? Gives yeah. us flowers. Good stuff. So this film's great. It's moving along. We get to that final third. And there's a reveal made about the intention of uh, the killer. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just, you know, I'm going to say it and I'm not judging anyone. I'm not condemning anyone, but I'm going to say I am pro vaccine. I am pro mask when needed. I am, you know, I, you know, I believe in those things. <laughs> you know, I believed in being a good citizen as I saw it to do my part to, uh, you know, keep things at bay. But, uh, this film makes a turn in the last third that really felt clumsy and shoehorned to me. Mm. Mm. It is, it is, it is weird. And the film had built up enough goodwill with me. Like I said, Yaron Levy shot it flowers there. Uh, it felt built up enough goodwill with me that it didn't really bother me, but it did knock it down like a little bit. Like it felt it felt almost like that thing that like Hostler, Eli Roth films do. And I know I don't love Roth as a filmmaker, but it kind of gets kind of too goofy for its own good. And there's a real kind of absurd tonal shift at the back end with the reveal and the motivations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I don't know what kind of bugged me. Mm. I know? can see that. I can see that. And I, I remember having some issues with the film. I remember liking it overall. Yeah, but I remember having some issues with the movie. I just can't remember exactly what they were, but I do remember they had to do with the back end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The back end gets a little goofy, but I'll, like, listen, really dug it. Yeah, it's entertaining. It's very entertaining. Short it's too, isn't it? It's only like eighty something minutes. Yeah. Listen, Hyams and Kevin Williamson, hand in glove, man. Yeah, yeah. So Hyams is interesting. He's. Actually attached. I know Nicholas Winding Refn was going to remake Maniac Cop. I think he's hired Hyams to direct it, and he's going to produce Perfect. it. Perfect. Perfect choice. Yeah. Uh, so that ought to be interesting because they're they're, re- they're trying to reboot Maniac Cop, and uh, Hyams is attached as the director right now. I see that, and I, I listen. I think Hyams is a guy that doesn't get enough love. Hyams is a really good filmmaker, man. Lean and mean. He can make films look better than their their, their budget. I oh really yeah, love- yeah. He gets a lot. He gets a lot out of very little. If people have not seen those Universal Soldier films that he did, you know, 10 years ago now or whatever it was, they really owe it to themselves to go back and watch them because they deal with like they're brutal, like in terms of the violence. Yeah. They they deal with some like heavy existential stuff, like as far as a series like that would go. Yeah, there's they're they're surprising. That's what I that's the word I would use. They're very surprising. But I've seen some of his other films. He did a film called Alone that was pretty good. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I gotta see that. Uh, that one's pretty good. It's got the same uh, guy that's in the 
uh, sick. He's in there. Mark Menchacha. Yes, I saw and, that. Uh, My he, wife said he looks like Chuck Norris. <laughs> he he kind of does a little bit. Yeah. He's done some TV shows, did Dragon Eyes, which I don't think was very good. I didn't see it, but yeah, I mean, he's 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 a he's a talented director. I hope he gets more work. And he's you know he he hops around. He does TV and and film, so he he tries to hop around and do what he can. So you got to pay the bills, right? But I think he's one of the more underappreciated genre filmmakers. Yeah, uh, working right. Yeah. Like yeah. what's this? He did all square. It looks like from the post, like a. It's like a like a comedy of some sort. I think it is a comedy of some sort. It looks interesting. Yeah, looks interesting about baseball or softball or something. Ah, I don't know. You know, you probably knew this. Gideon Adlin's mom is in that movie. Pamela Adlin, who I had a major crush on, like loved eight. Pamela Adlin when I was a kid. Yes. Oh my god, me too. Oh, <laughs> oh loved her, man. Loved her, loved her, and yes, yeah, I love Pamela Adlin. And uh, if you guys don't know who she is, if you look her up, you will know who she is. Did you ever see, I think she's in it. Did you ever see Bad Manners? Yeah, yeah. I've seen a lot of stuff Pamela Adlin's been in. Big fan. Big that fan. That was a big like birthday party. I love Bad Manners. <laughs> it was like a really big film in my childhood. Bad Man, Pamela Adlin, man, major crush. Yeah, she was, uh, I guess, for quick, she's the youngest version of the Pink Ladies in Greece too. Yeah. And uh, she's in uh, she's in quite a bit of stuff from that era. And so, uh, yeah, she's worked a lot. I mean, she does a lot of voice work, but she's yeah, got she like does. 231 credits. I mean, she's, she, she does a lot of stuff. Yeah. Most, mostly voice work nowadays, but she's great. Beautiful lady. She is, man. It's funny. Yeah. And yeah, yeah her daughter looks a lot like her too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, and her daughter's good in the film. The other actress is really good in the film too. Like, you know, yeah, I think all the acting in the film is really good. I, I, I just think, you know, there's a choice made at the back end and it was either going to hit or it's not, it's going to hit with some people and some people it's not going to hit with it's a, but at least it was a choice. It was a choice. I just felt like it just, it felt shoehorned to me, yeah, whether I agree yeah. with it or not. Yeah. Yeah. Bethlehem million is the, the other actress who's really good in the film actually. Uh, and physical performance from those two young actresses, but it just felt like you don't need to shoehorn this in man. And again, that it, it doesn't run contrary to anything. I believe it just, I don't know. Do we need it? I don't know. I don't think we do, but yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. To be strong, but still, listen, six worth your time. It's a good home invasion, lean, mean. Horror yeah. Film. Yeah. I liked it. I remember liking it. Is that all? That's it. That's all. All right. I watched a few things. I did a rewatch of a couple Dracula films. They were on the same Blu-ray, so I just went ahead and knocked them both out. I watched Dracula's Daughter from 36 and Son of Dracula from... 43, I think. And uh, just to kind of watch them and stuff. Uh, Dracula's Daughter is interesting. It's kind of progressive. And there's some lesbian undertones going on there and everything else. So it's kind of interesting for 1936. It's kind of underrated. Uh, you know, these old horror films, they're not really... They're only horrific in the way of style and mood. I mean, there's nothing that's going to scare you. Uh, we've definitely become immune to that. But, uh, you know, for interesting kind of old school horror filmmaking, they're interesting. And when I say that, I'm basically kind of talking about Son of Dracula, which I think is very uneven. It's got its fans. This is the one with Lon Chaney playing Dracula, which is he just seems out of his depth as Dracula. This kind of suave character and stuff. Chaney just never really kind of struck me as that. Um, I know some people have said that Lon Chaney is a terrible actor. Lon Chaney Jr., that is. Um, I know we've talked about him before on the show and how he... 
I don't think he was a terrible actor. I just think he was an actor who had a lot of problems. Uh, and when he was good, he was really good. I think he's great in Spider Baby and some other films. Oh, he is great in Spider Baby. Yeah. Um, but he could hit it out of the park when he needed to. But this one's interesting. It's got some really interesting shots in it and a lot of style. I think it's directed by the same director that did Wolfman with Cheney. And that one had some style to it as well. So that one's interesting for that. But I mean, these movies are great because they're, you know, I think Dracula's Daughter is only 77 minutes long, 71 minutes long, something like that. And then Son of Dracula is only 80 minutes. So the great thing about these films is, you know, you can, you can really kind of tear through them. And I just had that Dracula box set sitting on top of a box, uh, that Universal Blu-ray set they put out, all the Dracula films on well, you know one package. And I just thought, well, you know, I'm just going to open that up, maybe rewatch Dracula or something like that. And I was like, well, I don't really want to rewatch Dracula. I've seen Dracula a handful of times. Not really any reason to revisit it right now. I'll check out something else. So I thought Dracula's Daughter and Son of Dracula were two I haven't seen as often. So I went back and looked at them. And they, they, were, they were fun for what they are. Uh, checked out the film documentary. It's on Netflix. I'll sleep when I'm dead. This is about Stephen Aoki. That's oh, his, great. Superstar DJ. Yeah. Superstar DJ, Stephen Aoki, yeah. who, uh, one of the reasons why I, uh, I'm not an EDM guy, but, uh, I know that, um, what's interesting about Aoki is he comes from the, the Benihana enterprise, yeah. the Rocky Aoki, who was a character, if there ever was one. Uh, his dad um, created Benihana. He was the world for a long time. I think he was the fastest man on water in a boat. I think he uh, was also, I think he flew a hot air balloon from, I can't remember from where, from China to to America maybe. Um, he was a, he's a wrestling champion, not a professional wrestling champion, but like an Olympic wrestling champion. Just a real character. And a, a guy that felt like he had to do be the best at everything he was. And he kind of created Benihana, which, uh, oddly, Will, you just went to a, a Japanese-inspired hibachi grill just this past weekend. <laughs> so Benihana, you know, kind of kicked that stuff off. I don't even know if there's any Benihanas left anymore. But um, I remember that being a big deal. You know, you go to eat and you'd be entertained while you're eating, which is always kind of fun. People flipping eggs or throwing food in your mouth from a distance. <laughs> I don't know if anybody did that for you the other night. They didn't. Ours was um, like you grill it yourself. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, like kind of a communal thing. But I've done teppanyaki, which is that style. And yeah, they pop the the food in your mouth from the middle of the room. It's it's pretty crazy. Yeah, the, the, the pops. Yeah, the I mean, this was really interesting. I, I really like this because Stephen Oki had a complicated relationship with his dad. Uh, he loved his dad, but his mom and dad got divorced young. And so he wouldn't see his dad as often, but he really admired his dad, uh, even though it was a complicated relationship because his dad was this person that had to be the best at what he does. Uh, just he, There was no ifs, ands, or buts. He just had to be the best. And Stephen, the, the DJ, he kind of took that on. And I know Stephen Aoki from hardcore music and stuff like that. That's what he was before he was a DJ. It's very interesting, as uh, you know, most is usually the case. Musicians kind of people who really play music and everything else are pretty much into every genre. And uh, he was really into hardcore back in the early days. And then he moved away from that and got into EDM, which is electronic dance music for those who don't know, and has become this kind of superstar DJ who travels, who does, you know, there's 365 days in a year and he does 300 shows a year. Yeah. And so he's everywhere. And uh, he's really kind of become synonymous with 
rather people in the EDM field because there's always the in every music genre there's the snobs. Yep. Who don't like the most popular DJ. And I don't know if he's the most popular DJ right now. Oh. But he's probably the most prolific one. Very well known too. Like yeah. And uh that goes that rubs some people the wrong way. And I know I remember in the documentary they kind of talk about a little bit how he kind of brought hip hop into it a little bit and and other genres into it. And some people in the EDM world are like, don't don't taint our music with other forms of music. But that's what music is. It's a melting pot. Which, for the record, as someone who loves like house music and electronic music, that was a small cross section of people that felt that way because a yeah. lot of times hip hop was underground music, just like yeah music was yeah yeah it's just it's silly but that's the way people are they always want purity it's yeah. it's always the same old story it's like oh yeah i like this band up until this album and usually it's always the album that breaks them mm-hmm. it's always the album that's the big album for them yeah so if you look at almost every genre it's like yeah i really like so-and-so until that album i was like oh the album that everybody started to like them on <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that's usually the case and there's like it, it's it's this weird level of bitterness or this weird level of it was mine and now it's everybody's and I don't like it anymore. Yep. And it's, it's very strange to me. It's very strange behavior because why, why make music if you're not listened to? I, I don't understand why, why get out there and make music if people don't listen to you. And people think that I, I know as somebody who writes songs, you, you can't just sit down one day and say, I'm going to write a hit. It doesn't no. work that way. It either works or it don't. I've heard tons of catchy songs that never hits. And I've heard tons of catchy songs that are hits. But I don't think any band sets down and is like, I'm going to write a hit. And if they do, it's still there's still a high probability of missing. So it's it's very interesting to me that people have this, this, this I don't know, this hoarding mentality with their, their artist and stuff. And uh, I just find that odd. It, it happens in movies too. Like people will love a filmmaker and then they have a big hit. And they're like, well, I like that filmmaker up until that uh, one film that came out <laughs> and it's like, Oh, you mean the one everybody saw? So, it's you know, like this weird <laughs> snob sort of elitism thing, right? Yeah. It's very strange to me. It's very strange. Cause it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, why would you do any of this work if you weren't seen or heard? Yeah. Uh, I don't see the point just to do it. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like it works for me anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, pretty good documentary. It's on Netflix if you want to watch it. it. Yeah, yeah, I think you'd like it. It's, it's pretty good. I liked it quite a bit. Um, it's short too. Not a not a very long one. I really don't have anything else. Um, it sounds like it's time to eat breakfast over there for you. But uh, hey, you know, gets their flowers <laughs> during Love Month, fittingly. My wife. She, brought she just brought me in a feta spinach and tomato omelet with a fresh cup of coffee. There you go. There you go. Lord. I'm I'm living the bachelor life over here. I just had a cold piece of pizza. <laughs> hey, whenever I eat cold pizza, man, I think of you. <laughs> yes, brother. Yes, I just had a cold piece of pizza, a little sl- little slice, crust and all. And, you know, I just wanted to get a little bread on the stomach to go with the coffee. Feeling good, feeling good. Got to be honest. Didn't drink the coffee and eat the pizza at the same time. Not quite to that realm yet. For whatever reason, pizza and coffee just don't go together for me. But. Yeah, I can do the red meat and coffee, and I can do most things in coffee. But for whatever reason, I can't do even chicken dishes and things like that. But I, I don't Italian food and coffee. I, coffee has to come after or before, but I can't do it during. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, know, I don't know why that is. I think it must. Maybe it's the tomatoes. I don't know. I don't know. Don't know. Maybe I need to research that further. Anyway, um, research further. Yeah. 
I want to research further some choices you're going to make because it's time for this or that. Yeah, and I'm trying to hit the button. So that gets into an interesting conversation right off the bat. I mean, this or that. Coffee before a meal or coffee after a meal? I'll take after. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I can see that. I think I like I think I like both. Well, I do like both. I think I can do both. Now, um Yeah, if I'm going out to eat dinner, I think I'd rather have a beer uh or a drink of some sort than a coffee. Yeah, yeah, coffee would be after. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's an old school thing to drink coffee after a meal. Mm-hmm. There's a reason for that. Uh, I think uh, it's so you can uh, you can avoid dessert sometimes because coffee gives you a little bit of a filler, right? Oh man, it totally does. It totally does. Kind of limit limit your calorie intake. <clears throat> All right, so what you got? I got uh, five more from Rob, and then I'm at the Milano Caliber Podcast, and I am gonna. I think I'll kick it off this time. Yeah, let's do it. Here we go. Ready? Crash zoom or split diopter? Split diopter, baby. Yeah, I think for a big chunk of us, split diopter means a lot. Mm-hmm. I think there might be split diopter in the movie we're talking about this week. Yeah. Um, John Carpenter loved the split diopter. So did Brian De Palma. Uh, so a lot of style there. Um, different filmmakers, but certainly their films look similar. Those two guys. I always think of De Palma with the split diopter. Yeah, always. Yeah. I mean, he's like, yeah, <laughs> split diopter. And not only that, but split screen. He loves he loves the splits. Yeah. He loves to split it. Does love to do <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I might need to I might need to ask Nancy Allen. Of the <laughs> oh man. Oh wow, this went down a dark road. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> Likes to split it. Uh <laughs> That just sounds perverted, doesn't it? I mean, even though that's not how I intended it at the beginning, now obviously we we can't get off of it because now that's what we're thinking of. But oh man, yeah, likes to, it, it just sounds my- sounds more naughty than likes to crash it. Yeah, likes to crash <laughs> zoom that baby. Yeah, I think crash zooms are kind of associated with uh, you know certain Hong Kong era films, yeah, and cheap films because they didn't have dolly tracks. I think of like uh, late sixties, early seventies. Japanese gangster films. Yeah, there's that. And I remember John Carpenter on Assault on Precinct 13. There's that pan in on the main heavy of Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah. And he only had so much dolly track because they only had so much money. So he had to zoom the last half of it. And he still does not like that shot because he don't like to use zooms. It's funny you say that. I've never thought about that. But he literally doesn't have a lot of zooms in his stuff. No, no, no. He's usually a dolly guy. Dolly or, you know, Panaglide or Steadicam guy. He doesn't really like to zoom. Some people don't. Some people don't like to zoom. Some people love to zoom, zoom, zoom. So yeah, I'm split. I'm split diopter as well, though, because it, it's an era. Yes, and it's an era I love. And I don't know if anybody really uses split diopter anymore. It it does feel like it's a bit of a not in a bad way, but antiquated stylistic choice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I'm gonna go split diopter as well. I'm for it, but yeah. Um, okay, inspired by this week's film, cherry cobbler or Dutch apple pie. Um, so I can be weird with cherries. Some things I love cherry and some things I don't. I'm going to go Dutch apple pie on this one because I do love Dutch apple pie. Matter of fact, I I really would like a slice of Dutch apple pie right about now. 
Oh man. Um, and I am a fan of the the Travis Bickle way of eating the apple pie, which is to put a slice of American cheese on it. I am a fan of that. I'll do it. Yeah. I'm not opposed to it. Yeah, it's good. I don't have French vanilla ice cream, but I'll I'll do the cheddar. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good. It adds a it adds a texture and a flavor to it that you think off the top of your head doesn't mix, but it actually works quite well. That sweet and savory thing, right? Yep. Yeah, it works really well. So if you never tried it, try it. But I'm gonna go Dutch apple pie. I like cherry pies. I like cherry cobbler. But I don't love cherry for it's a, it's a little too tart for me, just a slight bit too tart. So that's why I'm going Dutch apple pie. No, I get you. Uh, I am. I love both. Uh, you can't go wrong. I will take this and that. But I'm going to go with the cherry cobbler because I like the tart. I like that. I yeah, man. Just not much more to say. I love both. I'm going to go cherry cobbler though. Yeah, uh, cobbler wise, um, I'm a I'm a peach cobbler guy all day. What a what a what a revelation, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, love some peach cobbler, man. Yeah. Very southern thing, the peach cobbler. Uh okay. Uh Rob gives us Italian language or English dub for Italian exploitation films. So this is an interesting one because a lot of times they were shot uh with the English dub as the principal dub, right? Like they weren't yeah. shot, like the, the, the Italian audio, like a lot of times it was shot in English, phonetically or otherwise, or they would just have the English dub over it. And they had pretty good, a uh, pretty good dub team. If you watch enough Eurocrime films or Jalos, you see, you hear a lot of the same voices, right? Yeah. Um, normally I would like to say like I would 19 times out of 20 take the original language dub, but this is kind of a weird one where like English, you know, was principally used eh. yeah i'll go because it's italian films italian genre films i'll go with the uh english dub because then we get to hear franco nero in his impeccable <laughs> breathy english yeah 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 so this is a weird one uh sometimes all films i try to watch all films in the language they're shot in Yes. But oddly, some films I feel like pretty much get a pass no matter what. Yeah. And crime films from Italy are definitely one of the genres that definitely get it. Giallo, I kind of like it to be Italian a little bit more. Yeah. It just kind of adds to the vibe for some reason. But with Italian films in general, I think I can go with the English dub and be fine because they're so American influenced. Yeah. Whereas like, you know, Hong Kong films, the English dub can be a little dodgier. Yeah, it can be a little dodgy and a little odd and easy to make fun of. Yeah. Not that you can't make fun of the Italian ones either. You can, but oh man, bad dubs are. <laughs> yeah, I think because I think it's basically because, like what you said, they shot a lot of their films, and if you know, if you had actors from every different country, they just let them use whatever language they spoke in. And then just somebody would explain to Henry Silva or somebody that he said this, and then Henry Silva would say that in English. And then John Maria Volante would say something in Italian, and Mario Adorf would say something in German. <laughs> and you got all you got all these actors speaking in different languages, but because they were single shots, a lot of times things like that, they just had somebody on set that would explain the scene to everybody and tell everybody what everybody was saying, and then go back and dub it because they shot them without sound. So it's a it's an interesting way to shoot movies and stuff, but I think that's why it works. 
I'm actually surprised people don't shoot movies like that still because it would save so much money. And, you know, but I guess people just don't, some people don't like that though, man. Some people don't like that dubbing stuff. Like that completely takes them out of a movie like right away. Not me, but I mean, there's people out there like that. Next one. Um, this is also inspired by this week's film. Uh, Coke or Pepsi? Oh. The classic. The classic battle, yeah. Coke versus Pepsi. So, I liked Pepsi a lot when I was a kid. Um, but I've grown fond of Coke. Of course, I don't drink either one of the sugar varieties anymore, and I haven't since, well, since I was in my 20s probably. Um, occasionally, I'll have a sugar Coke, but, I mean, once you get that level of sugar out of your uh, drinking uh, habits, you really just never kind of never go back to it. It's just, it, you you know, as a kid, you're kind of used to it, and then you like Kool-Aid and things like that, and then you just kind of get away from it. You just don't go back to it. And don't get me wrong, I still love sugar in my drinks. I put a little bit of sugar there's sugar and coffee creamer I put a little bit in there, and then there's sugar and iced tea, and I'll put a little bit in there. And I'm not totally averse to sugar. I wish I was. But um, I just that level of sugar, I guess I should say. But if I had to go with the sugar version of Coke or Pepsi, I think I'm going Coke. I think I'm going Coca-Cola. How do you feel? How do you feel? I know you don't drink a lot of soda, so. I don't. I, I could have, and this isn't boasting. I have my vices. I love ice cream. I can never say no. Um, I I don't drink pop. I haven't really since high school. If I go to the theater, I'll, I'll get an iced tea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because when I was in high school, I was always worried about getting acne, so I didn't want to drink too much soda. Mm-hmm. But when I was younger, I did, certainly. Um and my dad would hate me for not hate me. He would he would break his heart for me to say this because my dad's a Coke man through and through. <laughs> Coke. He is just about it, man. He's about that Coca-Cola life. And I, you know, dark secret, Pepsi man. I love Pepsi. Uh, I mean, I, I, I do like Pepsi quite a bit. You know what's weird? And I don't know if it's just because I haven't tasted it. Maybe I would feel differently if I tasted it now. But my argument has always been of the two, Pepsi always tasted crisper to me. Whereas Coke tasted more syrupy and sweet. But it's weird because I've heard people say the opposite, that Pepsi tastes more sweet and syrupy and Coke's crisper. But I don't know. No, I think I think you're on. I think you're right. I think Coke tastes more syrupy. Definitely. Yeah. 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 As somebody who I haven't drank a regular Coke or a regular Pepsi in quite some time. But um, even the diet derivatives of those two things are probably the, pretty much the same. I would say well, no, no, I wouldn't say that. Diet Coke actually has this uniquely flat, weird flavor that once you become hooked to, you can't really get off of it. Oh, man. I know people that have serious addictions to Diet Coke. Yeah, Diet Coke is one of those ones that, that just kind of – and I, when I first started drinking diet sodas, Diet Coke was the worst one. Like, it was gross. Like, I would never drink that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then once I, I got on the Diet Coke, I couldn't get off of it. So uh, it is what it is. No shame in my game. I'm a Diet Coke guy. I'm a, I'm a Southern guy. Coke is everywhere. And everything's yep. and everything's a Coke. Even if it's a Pepsi, it's a Coke. I might be telling me that. <laughs> it's a Coke. <laughs> like you go to a restaurant, I'll have a large Diet Coke. Is Pepsi okay? Yeah, it's fine. That's awesome. Uh, you hear that all the time. All right. Uh, David Lynch or David Cronenberg? 
Cronenberg. Yeah, 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 I got you. I, go ahead. I know what you're going to say, I, I think. I love both. I do. Mm-hmm. Part of it, I would be lying if I didn't say there isn't a little bit of civic pride in there for Cronenberg. But uh, you and I have talked about this. I, I've learned to love Lynch and Lynch's outlook on life and and his art. Um, but I think from my money, I just feel like top to bottom, especially with some of the stuff when he got even outside of horror, just for me, Cronenberg moves the needle a little more. But that gap is a lot closer than it once was for me. Yeah, it's closer than it would have been for me, too, at some point. But I am going also going to go Cronenberg. I think, uh, you know, when Cronenberg's gone, we're going to be missing a great filmmaker. We really are. He's yeah. one of the great transgressive filmmakers, but also one of the great thoughtful filmmakers. David Lynch is his own thing. He's his own genre. There's There's nobody like David Lynch. And I don't honestly, I don't know if there'll ever be anybody like David Lynch. There's David Lynch esque type directors, but he's unique unto himself. And uh, I wish there were more filmmakers like David Lynch, but uh, uh, they were just unique because, I mean, Lynch, you can almost immediately tell you're watching David Lynch film. Cronenberg as well, but Cronenberg can do everything. But plus, he's just a better. Not that David Lynch isn't a good narrative filmmaker, he is. You've seen the straight story since then, you know, he can make a straight up film. But he just chooses not to, whereas Cronenberg will actually make a straight-up film, but he just mixes his Cronenberg-isms into it. And not just body horror, but transgressive social politics, all kinds of stuff. He just kind of mixes everything in there. So uh, that's what I like about Cronenberg. So, yeah, I'm going to go that route. Nice. You, You got any more? You got another one? I got two more from Rob here. Okay, I'll give you one, and then we'll do... We'll do the two from Rob. Uh, David Ayer or Antoine Fuqua? So this one's for me. For me, is easy. <laughs> uh, I like David Ayer uh, because sometimes he's ballsy and and over the top and trashy. Yeah, uh, I like that Schwarzenegger film he did. I liked um, a few other things he's done. I liked End of Watch up until it lost a track of what it was trying to do. Mm-hmm. And there's a few other things of his I like. Fury's really good. Yeah, but he sometimes, yeah, Fury's good. Uh, but, man, talk about a guy. Here's what I'll say about David Ayer. At least he swings yes. and he misses. But I admire the swinging. I really yep. do. I admire the swinging. I really do. But Antoine Fuqua, is, he is the safer of the two. But there's something about Fuqua's style that I just like. I just, it's slick, it's steady, it's not over the top, but it's just over the top enough to be attractive, and I just think he's a good filmmaker. I think he's a really good filmmaker. I just, I I don't think he's found completely, weirdly, after all this time, his niche, really. I don't know if it's crime films or what it is, but, you know, again, I just talked about the Equalizer films last week. Uh, You know, the films look good and everything else. Quality is back and forth on all three, but I, I don't know. I, I just Antoine Fuqua speaks to me in some weird way, so I'm gonna go Fuqua. It's a tough one, a tough one for me. I got to be honest, you know, because look at Ayer's work. Harsh Times, Street Kings is okay. End of Watch, I really like. Sabotage, I like. I think Fury's really good. Mm-hmm. Suicide Squad, well, you know, yeah, right, Dunk. I haven't really seen the beekeeper. No real interest to see the beekeeper. Um, whereas Fuqua, a lot of a lot of cool. Like I didn't even realize he directed 
like music videos for Prince and Jeanne and CC Peniston. Like I never would have guessed that. That's really funny. But then we get Training Day. Yeah, uh, stuff I really like. I'm saying like Training Day, Equalizer. Um, that's a tough one for me, man. Because there's stuff that uh, Fuqua's made, and I like Fuqua. Yeah, I, you know, I guess. Like this is like a classic push, you know, in sort of Vegas parlance. I guess I would take Fuqua too. I don't think I, I think he is probably a better filmmaker overall, but I do think both are, are good filmmakers. Just air layers it on a little thicker sometimes. Right? It goes yeah. a little louder. Yeah. 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 Whereas can despite working in sort of hyper masculine genres, there's a little more subtlety and technique sometimes, but yeah. I think both are good filmmakers. Yeah. I, th- I think it really just comes down to that. I think Fuquad for me, just it, there's weirdly, it's just the safety, even though I'm typically the guy that likes the guys that swing more. Yeah. It's weird, but I almost feel like air, like if you were to do like a starting five, like in you know, basketball, I almost feel like airs for me, air starting five might be better, even though maybe Fuqua has the, Hmm. The best overall film of the two? I don't know, man. Because I don't know. I mean, it is tough when you think about it in that way. Yeah, I think Air might have a better starting five for me. Like Harsh Time, Street Kings, End of Watch, Sabotage, and Fury. Pretty good. Pretty good. That's a solid five. And then yeah. Sabotage is 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 trash, uh, but it's it's, trash. it's great. It's great trash. It's great, it's great trash. Whereas Fuqua, you got you know Training Day. What would you say is best five? Training Day Equalizer. I really like Tears of the Sun. That's an underrated one. I've never seen. Yeah, it's really underrated. It's a really mm-hmm. good one. It's kind of it's kind of Seven Samurai going into the jungle to save people type stuff. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Uh, yeah, I never saw his Magnificent Seven. Some people tell me that his Magnificent Seven is good, but I haven't seen it yet, so I wouldn't know. Just didn't strike me as interesting at the time. Maybe I'll check it out. Yeah, same here. I mean, it felt like when I would have wanted to show my kids because, um, you know, had some actors they knew. It was kind of like a, you know, a gateway kind of Western thing, even though they love Leone, the Good, the Bad, the Ugly and some of the Leone stuff they've seen. Um, but it's got a pretty big cast, guys they would know. Yeah. 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 You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's got the. I'm looking now at Fuqua. Oh, he has directed a lot of stuff, hasn't he? Good Lord. Yes, I know. <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, you got to, there's, there's a lot to go through here. And uh, I don't know. I haven't seen all this stuff. A lot of Fuqua stuff and air stuff. I'm not really into Like I could care less about Shooter. Like, but yeah, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't scream to me. You know what? These guys are very comparable. So that's what I'll they say. Are. I just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've never seen Brooklyn's Finest, which is a I Fuqua. Southpaw either, which just, I like Hall, but just did not appeal to me at all. I did see Olympus Has Fallen. I like that one. I don't like Butler, so I didn't watch it. Yeah, 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 I got you, I got you. I did like that one, though. That was pretty good. It wasn't, it wasn't amazing, but it was it was entertaining. Yeah, interesting, interesting. All right, uh, last one's from Rob here from over Calvary, not from Outer Space. Claudia Cardinal or Barbara Boucher... And then he he has a last one. I'm just going to put these all together because his last one is Edvige Finnick or is there anyone who could be compared to her? So clearly he's a Finnick fan. So I'll put her in the, I'll just throw the curveball, make it a death match. Claudia Cardinal, Barbara Boucher or Finnick. That's a tough one. <laughs> I love Babs, but she's getting out. She's going over the top rope first. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, you know, she's interesting. Uh, we started the show, didn't really like her. We did the show, started to love her. Um, and have come to love her quite a bit. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I'm going to let you go first. I'm going to let you fall on the sword. <laughs> so I love Edvich. Yeah. Dude. But I'm going to go Claudia, man. Oh, nice. I go Claudia for me. She's done a little more. Man, Sadie. Yeah. Come on. Sadie. No, I just feel like Claudia's done some stuff that, like her top end stuff is, and I'm not being vulgar there, her her sort of top end stuff's really, really good. It's supporting roles, mind you. And Edvidge has maybe had to carry some load more, but um, the Leopard, Once Upon a Time in the West, Eight and a Half. Um, you know, she's really good, man. Yeah. But Edvidge, I see, you know what I would say? Edvidge is sort of Edvidge is to genre film what Sophia Loren was to like mainstream Italian film. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now. Uh, I'm with Rob. There's not really anybody that compares to her in that genre, in that era, mm. and in Italian cinema. So she's going to be my number one choice of the three. Um, but that that's kind of like, you know, she's kind of like the, I don't know, Muhammad Ali of Italian cinema. <laughs> Female you know, was. You're right. You know what? I, I'm going to change my answer here. Yeah. Fennec, her range as an actress, she was really good. Then the reason I said Loren was... She was really good in the sex comedies too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was a good actress that was maybe given the short shift because she was beautiful. Cardinal is great, but she's not given as much chance to stretch her legs as, say, like a Stefania Sandrelli or another actress of the time. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Sorry, had a message come through on my phone at the same time. There's a slight pause there. Uh, yeah, if I had to go three, if I had to go between Claudia Cardinal and Barbara Boucher, there was a time when I would have picked Cardinal because she's in one of my favorite films ever made. Yes. And she still is synonymous with me with that world because that is still one of my favorite films ever made. But, and if you guys don't know what it is, please, you know what it is. Uh, <laughs> I'm not even going to say it. <laughs> Uh, it's another one that I'd like to cross off our list of shame at some point and cover. Um, but I'm going to go Barbara Boucher here as a dark horse kind of out of left field pick because, again, when we started the show, I was not a huge fan of hers. I've, she's always kind of popped up and stuff. And, yeah, she's attractive and this and that. But I just like always kind of saw her as this kind of almost like porcelain doll of sexuality or something. Yeah. And I've come to really appreciate her. And I probably is Crab Prostitute that really made me come to appreciate her. Yeah, that was a punishing role, man. Yeah, that was the one that really kind of took it over the top. <laughs> I still think of that scene, and we'll never, we'll never forget it <laughs> for as long as I live. Um, I want to get into one little bit from Rob, too. He did send in some feedback during this stuff. Um, he said, uh, thanks for the heartfelt words for me, uh, that I really do have a wonderful way of expressing uh, some of this deeper life material, which really enriches our show. Uh, Rob, I, I, I appreciate the compliment. I don't know where that comes from for me, but I think it just comes from me. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a searcher. I'm not that, I'm that kind of person. I'm not a man of faith. So I'm always looking for the reason we're here. And the older I get, the more and more I realize that the only real reason we're here is each other. And, uh, that means a lot to me. And, uh, I spent a lot of years by myself, a lot of years avoiding people. And a lot of years avoiding friendship, I have regrets there, but um, that's where a lot of my life kind of material comes from. It just comes from a deeper understanding that 
you don't need faith if you have people. Uh, people are very important. So as somebody who, again, likes solitary things, people mean a lot. So always remember, appreciate your friends, appreciate your wife, appreciate your kids, appreciate your dogs, your cats. Appreciate everything you got because it's temporary. Never forget that. So that's where that comes from. Um, I almost got a little emotional talking right there, Will. Sorry. Apologize. Buddy, everything you said rings true. I, I really couldn't agree more. Yeah. You couldn't agree more. Yeah. It's it's, uh, it's so important. Yeah. So important. Um, all right. That's it for this or that. Yeah, man. You ready to get into the world of Johnny C again? Been a little while. Let's do it. All right. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back and do Starman from 84, 40 years ago. We'll be back right after this. Oddly, this is uh, Will picked the song for this review, and oddly, it has a it has a vibe of this movie. It does, and I didn't pick it for this. I don't have a morbid sense of humor, nor would I joke about this. But ironically, Otis Redding died in Wisconsin in a plane crash, and this film is set in Wisconsin uh, for a portion of the film. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. All right, Starman, John Carpenter's Starman. We got our. Call by the title it is. John Carpenter, one of the few directors who would put keep his name on uh, films. Um, kind of his ownership of things. Just one of the rare directors that could do that. Uh, an alien takes the form of a young Wisconsin widow's husband and makes her drive him to his departure point in Arizona. Um, let's just leave it at that. There's distrustful government agents and uh, an interesting scientist uh portrayal from charles martin smith underrated actor charles martin smith uh, underrated hey it's that guy yeah yeah he's 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 a great actor uh i really think he's super underrated always have thought so um this one's got jeff bridges karen allen charles martin smith i just spoke of richard jekyll back on the show great richard jekyll he's uh always plays a little bit of a heavy a little bit of a shithead uh oh, yeah. he's really good at that uh, Ted White, one of the Jasons, is in here. He plays the deer hunter, the guy that uh, <laughs> spits tobacco and everything else. One of my favorite scenes in the movie, for the record. Uh, an early performance from uh, MC Ganey is one of the cops. You might not recognize him because he doesn't have his uh, mustache. Uh, but, you know, Lost. Uh, he's in Lost and so many. He's in Alexander Payne movies, stuff like that. He's one of those other this this guy type performances. George Buck Flower pops up for a minute. He certainly does, and we'll talk about his scene a little bit later. Yeah, it's a great scene. And uh, again, another character actor, I think, honestly, who is incredibly underrated. 
I just, I think George Buckflower was more than, you know, the caricatures that he would portray sometimes. Great voice too, you know. How you doing there, Blair? That is exactly uh, him. And his <laughs> voice was so distinct. Yeah, so distinct. And a very distinct actor for the record. For a long time when I was a kid, I thought he might have been Crispin Glover's dad. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Because <laughs> they kind of remind me of each other, although he's not as over the top. All right, uh, we'll pick this one, so I'm going to lead on it. This is PG-rated. Some would say this was Carpenter's kind of reply to his ugly alien film, right? Um, He directed a film you may have heard of called The Thing, and uh, it didn't go over quite well. And in between that, he did another horror film, Christine, which did okay, did pretty good business. And then he came back to the alien type thing and wanted to do one a little bit more lighthearted for him anyway. And uh, that's Starman. And uh, I guess on the surface, the best way to kind of describe Starman to me, it's kind of, there's a little bit of Close Encounters, a little bit of Steven Spielberg here, a little bit of that, but it's through the Carpenter lens. So when I say that, what does that mean? Well, it has stuff that's unique to Carpenter. To me, it has interesting performances, which he always seems to get out of actors. And for the record, I'm just going to go out here and say this now. This may be my favorite thing Karen Allen's ever did. Like, I absolutely, I know Jeff Bridges gets a lot of the love for this film, and his performance is amazing. It's it's both insane and heartfelt. It's one of the, it's one of the crazy performances. Would you agree with that? I'm going to say I definitely would. Yeah. I 100% would. Yeah. It's a, it's a bizarre, some bizarre choices are made and they're easy to make fun of. But if you see it within the whole of the movie, it's pretty great. But Karen Allen in this is so heartbreaking and beautiful and sweet and just amazing. And I just, to this day, I still cannot understand how she wasn't a bigger star than she was. I mean, she's always worked. And she still works now, and she she still gets plenty of work. But I just think she is just beautiful in this film. I really do. You are so bang on with everything you said. So let's say this. I don't know. I didn't catch if you'd said this. Here's a piece of trivia for people. The only film of John Carpenter's that has uh, – take them for what you will, but an Academy Award nomination mm-hmm. is this film. Mm-hmm. It's Jeff Bridges' uh, performance as uh, he, he had a Best Actor nom for nom. What do I work for Entertainment Tonight? Yeah. Uh, hot uh, off the presses. Hot off the presses. Um, fun fact: I had a crush on Lisa Gibbons. Um, anyway, <laughs> moving on. So, so how how John Tesh of you? How John? Yeah. <laughs> Give me a keyboard, baby. <laughs> yeah. um, I I love this film. I love. Love, love this film. I think it speaks to me now more as an adult than it ever could have as an 18, 19 year old. And I'm grateful that I saw this later in life um, to allow it to really resonate with me. But it had been, I don't know, 17, 18 years, something like that. So it's interesting to see it as a young man of sorts. And now as someone who's approaching, if not middle aged, 44. So interpret that how you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bridges and Alan are so good in this film. There's such a, 
It's such a unique love story, you know, and it deals with things like grief. And you nailed it when you said Alan should have been bigger. I don't know why she wasn't. She she wasn't some big box office stuff, obviously, but her performance in this is so good. And Bridges goes out on a limb here. Mm-hmm. He right? does. Like his performance does. in the wrong hands. Oh, yeah. This could have been like the greatest Razzie performance in the history of cinema in the wrong hands. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it could have went sideways. It really could have. And there are moments, I'm not going to lie to you, there are moments when it does feel like it's going sideways. <laughs> but at the same time, I really quite enjoyed what he does. And this is an interesting John Carpenter movie. This is one of the few where he doesn't do the music. It's done by Jack Nietzsche. Jack Nietzsche does, yeah. Yeah. And uh, even though it does have a little bit of a Carpenter feel, mm-hmm. uh, the cinematography is done by Don Morgan, but you could swear that it looks like it's shot by Dean Cundy. Yeah. I mean, it still looks like a Dean Cundy film. And John Carpenter films, I think the reason why they're timeless for me, first of all, it's the type of camera he uses, usually Panaglide or panoramic view. It's the ratio he shoots in, everything else. They, everything looks big. And he does a really great job here of, incorporating his love of the West and the Western into this story. And, uh, you know, you get Monument Valley, you get, uh, quite a bit of stuff. You get the American Indians. It's, it's very little and very surface level, but it's there. Mm-hmm. And, and you get some really nice moments, uh, between actors talking. And this is what he's always been really good at. And he continues to show here. Now he would go on after this to make big trouble in little China which is, which you know, is arguably one of the most influential films for a generation of kids, yeah, uh, including me and you and and a lot of people because it mixes all kinds of genres together, and it's kind of the what comes out the other side is a whole bunch of fans of, arguably, midnight cinema in and of itself, an amalgamation of a lot of the things that make midnight cinema. Yeah, yep, and I I think that you know maybe you could argue. That this is towards, I mean, I like later Carpenter stuff. I know you do as well. Yep. I mean, he's one of the few directors, I think, that pound for pound, he pretty much nails it most of the time. Yeah. He, he really doesn't miss much. Um, but I would say that the decline probably starts in some ways right after Big Trouble in Little China. Not amazingly, because They Live I like a lot, but Prince of Darkness, They Live, they just feel like lesser films that he made for me up until this point. Like from Dark Star to Starman, or Big Trouble in Little China, I should say. Like, for me, he doesn't miss. Like, I, I like all those films, including the Elvis film, including the Someone's Watching Me film. I like everything he does there. It's not that I don't love They Live, and uh, um, Prince of Darkness. I do love those. But I, I'm, I, at that point, I started to see some creaks in the armor, if that made sense. And no, it's true. I started to see some things. And, uh, and then, of course, Memoirs of Invisible Man, which is arguably, for me, probably his worst film. Uh, that's for me, not for everybody. Some people do love it, and I understand that. But for me, it's probably the film of his I like the least. Um, but then he, you know, he took some time off, and he came back. Within the Mouth of Madness, which was a bit of a return form. Escape from L.A. is a bit of junk, but, you know, it's kind of fun junk. It's fun. Yeah. Uh, Village of the Dam is pretty good. It's actually better than people give it credit for. I think. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's not bad. It looks really, really nice. Vampires is fun. We've talked about that on the show. You did on the show. Yeah. yeah. Ghost of Mars, I didn't like when I first saw it. 
but I've come to quite like it. Um, I love it. Yeah, I've come to quite like it. And then he kind of finishes off with uh, The Ward, which is, that's, you know, been 14 years now. He hasn't made a film for 14 years. And uh, that's kind of a shame. I really would hope he comes back and he makes a film. There's been rumors for a while that he's going to come back. You know, even if he does something like this, I think it would be great for him to come back. And I just don't know if he's willing to do that. I mean, you've talked about it before in the past. I've talked about it before in the past. I mean, let him do one of these low-budget Westerns that are hanging out there. There's a lot of those being made right now. Surely he could bring something to the table with that. Yeah. And uh, that would be nice. Even if you know somebody just wants to spend $10, $15, 20000000 million on a John Carpenter Western, surely it would be worth the gamble. Yeah, it could work some of the genre film festivals. It would, you know, I think you'd... <laughs> It would do well enough, right? Yeah, Interestingly, yeah. though, I saw he – and I didn't even know this was out until I was doing a bit of sniffing around at what he was doing right now. I know he's been very vocal about being content to license out his stuff, play video games, smoke joints. <laughs> and cigarettes. Yeah. And cigarettes. He smokes and, He smokes almost constantly. He's uh, <laughs> Loves the darts. Uh, so he's got this Suburban Screams – show that's oh, like a man. tv miniseries which I, I watched like the first 10 minutes of an episode and i was like i'm out <laughs> I, I heard it's i heard it's terrible it's it's pretty bad i'd imagine he probably got paid a little bit of change for it yep and that's fine it is what it is because he's got a lifestyle he enjoys and he just needs to finance that lifestyle yep so good for him uh shame for us but good for him <laughs> that's the way it goes i think that's a fair statement just to just to pull it back a sec so for me, I still think if you were not John Carpenter and Prince of Darkness and they live, like if you look at his career from Prince of Darkness onward, your name was not John Carpenter. So you got Prince of Darkness, they live, in the Mouth of Madness, Village of the Damned, Escape from LA, Vampires, Ghosts of Mars. That's a pretty good, and the ward, that's a pretty good career. It is. It is. It's, it's a, a pretty good career. Solid career for another director, yes. Yeah, absolutely but, it is. But when you're talking about an all-timer, that's like you said, where I feel like they live in Prince of Narc- Darkness are still very good films. Very good films, yes. But there is a slight drop down in quality from um, from the from fog. The stuff, but- yeah, from Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, totally. The man. thing. Um, yeah, I mean, Christine is a little bit of a blip in there, so it's kind of yeah. got that Prince of Darkness vibe to it. it does. I, I quite love it. But, I like it too. We, we've reviewed it on the show. We've done quite a bit of Carpenter, as yeah. roughly so. Yeah, we have. We've done quite a bit. Um, I don't. I'm trying to think at this point how many we haven't done. <laughs> not many. I'd like to do the Elvis. I still haven't seen the Elvis film. I'd like to see that one day. Yeah. We, we haven't done the thing, so there's that. There's that's that. a heavy hitter, man. That's that, a- for my money, I'll go on record as saying I think that's his best film. Uh, it's inarguable. Uh, it. Well, I mean, I, I'll, I'll just be honest and say that. For me, you know, he's got two absolute masterpieces, and that's one of them. And, uh, yeah, maybe arguably three. Yeah. And so, you know, he's he's a heavy hitter for me. Oh, man, for me too. So, for me too. Yeah, he's, yeah he's, he's up there. But, uh, you know, we've you know we well, we've done Assault on Precinct 13. Mm-hmm. We've done Halloween. Halloween. We've done The Fog. We've done Escape from New York. We've done Christine. We're now doing Starman. We've done Prince of Darkness, haven't we? Uh, yes, we've done They Live. They Live. We, we, we did Vampires. Yeah, we did Vampires. Me and Todd did In the Mouth of Badness. Wow, so we've we've covered a lot of uh, Johnny C, man. So, yeah, we're looking at uh, one, two, I didn't count, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of his films. This is his tenth John Carpenter film. 
on the show, which is, yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, that's a fair thing for us because he yeah. is inarguably for me, uh, one of my favorites, one of the best genre filmmakers, just filmmakers, guys I love. And I think of my favorite filmmakers, he's going to make my list. I just, and a diversity, right? We've, we've celebrated him before, but that's to bring it back to this film. That's why I wanted to pick this film because I feel like people are, there's a lot of talk and, and digital ink spilled about even Ghost of Mars and vampires, but this film just seems to never get talked about. Yeah, it doesn't. It kind of gets lost in the mix, which is really interesting. I don't know why. Maybe it's just because it's kind of uncarpenter-like. Yeah, and I think he was trying to do something, um, just a little different. I mean, again, the backlash on the thing I think really hurt him. Uh, professionally, we know it did, but I think personally, he took it quite personal. He's kind of said so over the years. He hasn't really ever forthright just kind of sat down and said, I was really angry at the way the reaction to the thing, because a lot of people kind of shit on it, or, you know, E.T. came out and it was the good alien film and he had the bad alien film. I, I think that, I think he just put so much of himself into the thing, and the thing is a great film. He has nothing to be ashamed of, but it, I think he just put so much of himself into it personally, and it was an important film to him growing up, the thing that conquered the world, the, the Howard Hawks slash Christian Dysart, I think, directed, or Christian, I can't remember that guy's name, but, you know, Hawks production, which is a very important film to his childhood. I think he just put too much of himself into it, and I think he was personally hurt by their, you know, and he was on the up and up, right? You got to remember Halloween, The Fog did well, Escape from New Couldn't York miss. did well. Yeah, and he was on the up and up, and he was, you know, uh, talked about in some type of reverence in some ways, and and then boom, here it goes. You know, he gets, you know, arguably his greatest film uh, is a bomb. So it, it's interesting in that way. Uh, and I think he kind of tried to recapture some things by working with the studio here and basically doing what arguably can be seen as, like like I said, like a Spielberg jam. Like I was kind of surprised at how much this is kind of like Close Encounters of the Third Kind on a rewatch. I've kind of forgotten about that aspect of it. But it's also kind of like, you know, on the run movies like Midnight Run or Defiant Ones or something like that, right? It totally is a road movie, right? It's a it's a sci-fi movie. It's a love story. It's a road movie. You know, it's a lot of things, and it does feel the most Spielberg. And I think that's the thing. Like he's he so he gives it's ba- it's a studio film very much. Like you said, it's shot by a different DOP. It's scored by Jack Nietzsche. Michael Douglas of all people is the producer on this film. Yeah. Yeah, Michael Douglas championed this film. It went through a few iterations. Tom Cruise was apparently up for the Jeff Bridges role. That, and I, I don't say this to disparage him. Been, I, I don't see him pulling it off at this point. Nah, he'd been too young. Uh, too young at that point. Same with Kevin Bacon. I think he's probably a little young for the role, even though he's a great actor. Um, you know, but just it. There's so many things outside of the norm for what Carpenter did. Maybe that's why it doesn't get talked about as much because it's not as Auturi in some way, but I think it's really testament to his diversity as a filmmaker. And, you know, I was thinking about this in the grand scheme of things. This is a lot of films, but also it's obviously a science fiction film. Yeah. If you just look at his science fiction work, mm-hmm. this Dark Star, the yeah. thing, which is horror, but it's science fiction horror. Yeah. They yeah, yeah. Live, goes from Mars again, science fiction horror. Like, even if you just took his science fiction stuff, he still got a great body of work. He does. He does. Right. So it's, yeah. Uh, so we'll get into this film proper, kind of talk yeah. about the basics behind it and stuff. Uh, Jeff Bridges' character. Uh, so this is a movie that 
isn't only just about love. It's about loss too and grieving. Beef, yeah. Yeah, and uh that's why I think Karen Allen's so good in this movie. She's oh, and she has some heartbreaking moments. She has those moments you go through in grief, whether you've lost a loved one to death or divorce or a breakup or whatever. Um, you have these moments of self pity that you go through. Um you blame yourself for things. Uh you blame yourself for things you didn't do, things you did do. Uh, maybe you thought you did them right, but you think you did them incorrectly because now you're questioning everything. Life is very hard that way. Uh, and the older you get, you know, I just, you know, for any of our young listeners, I just got to tell you, you know, the older you get, the more you realize that life is these moments of peaks and valleys. And you have to kind of be ready for that at any given time. There's no escaping it. Uh, it, it will, it, it gets everybody in the end. Um, if you're lucky enough to live a long life, part of that long life, unfortunately, involves loss. And it can be a dog. It can be a cat. It can be anything. Um, I think this movie really touched me in a lot of ways, not around this rewatch, not just because of what I've been going through recently in my personal life, but just the reminder that everything is so fleeting. Everything is so short in the grand scheme of things. It's really just a blink of an eye. Uh, again, this is 40 years old, this film. Let's not forget that. <laughs> but everything is so short and so brief. And you got to remember those moments. You got to hang on to those moments because at the end, that's all you're going to have is those moments. And uh, this movie opens up with some truly heartbreaking stuff. Uh, one of my biggest phobias in life is to watch old videos. Uh, the reason why is because I'm so empathetic to watching old videos that I get really emotional. Like I can't watch old videos of myself, my brother, my family, uh, my kids. I can't watch any of that stuff. I just bawl the whole time. I cry the whole time. I have a real aversion to looking into the past because it's, it's just too hard for me. All the past stuff for me, I keep in my head and that's where it's safe. But if I actually see it, I have a hard time with it. I'm not shaming anybody or telling anybody that they can't do that. There's a reason why these things exist. I'm not saying I never look at those things because that would be a lie. But I'm saying that I can't, I couldn't for the life of me do what she does in this film. I cannot sit down with a bottle of wine and watch old videos of a loved one I had lost unexpectedly. I Man, that would destroy me to no end. Uh, I'm just too in tune with that. I call it empathy, call it whatever you want to call it. I just can't do that. It's not for me. I agree with you, and I think this is one of the, the kind of beautiful things. I'll be very forthright in saying there's a couple scenes in this watching this. When I just, I was watching this by myself. Not that I wouldn't, I have no problem watching it with whomever. I don't think my kids are the right age to appreciate it. Yeah. 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 I've watched it with, but I, I, I broke down in tears a couple of times mm-hmm. watching this film again this time because of, like I said, the, the stuff. And it's an interesting perspective. Look at grief because grief weighs very heavily on this film. And the scenes when she's watching that, it, it's an interesting thing because I could not even play devil's advocate, but I could see the other side of the coin and say, well, Sometimes that's all you have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you want to hang on to that because yeah. it's as close as you get to tangible, living, breathing things. And there's times when I look at, you know, my wife shoots more video than I do. And we'll see videos of the kids that'll pop up, uh, you know, uh, like time capsule stuff through Google Photos or yeah. Facebook yeah. stuff. And I'll watch it. And it just, it's this limit, living, breathing moment in time. And it's it's beautiful, but it's also very bittersweet. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah, when someone passes, it's a very ethereal thing. 
It is. It is. You know, you you smell them in perfumes or recipes they used to cook or... Or clothes. Clothes. So that's something people hang on to for a long time, usually after a loved one passes. They do. Because clothes, no matter how much you wash them, for whatever reason, they have this ethereal kind of smell that sticks around. Like, dude, I can go to my mom and dad's house and my mom still has some of my dad's clothes and I can smell my dad in those clothes. Yeah. And, yep. and, and it just it takes you right back. It takes you right back. It's amazing. Yeah. And I don't know what that is. I think it's a human instinct thing. I don't think everybody has it, but I think a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I found that kind of stuff touching. Like she gives him some of his clothes and, but just imagine the setup for this film. Oh my God. <laughs> just imagine, imagine you're her. Imagine you go to sleep. You're, you're half tanked. You pass out and you wake up and your ex lover, ex husband, uh, comes back to life in your living room, butt naked after being a baby. <laughs> yeah. Which is, let's say the one thing about this film that hasn't aged well are some of the effects. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're definitely of, of their time. Yes, the film is not going to live or die. <laughs> looks like yeah. that baby looks a lot like the baby that comes out of the belly in Total Recall. <laughs> it does. It totally does. Uh, uh, it's the, like a weird, okay. almost like a weird, like werewolf transformation sequence, kind of the way it's moving. But yeah, kept waiting you know, for it to say, "Mr. Quaid." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, that was just slimy. Yeah. But it, but it, but it, it's it, it works for what it is and what it is. I mean, there's this weird moment too where like Jeff Bridges is hanging upside down. It's like he's in water or something. His hair's all sticking up. Yep. It really doesn't make any sense to me what he's doing at that point. But um, it looks cool. And there's these you know little balls that he uses for numerous things. That's a those are great little plot devices to kind of yep. give us you know uh, things that happen in the film. Now let's talk about the movie proper. It's a crazy setup. And, you know, you got to think to yourself, her passing out totally would probably be normal because it's insane. And she's kidnapped by this alien, quote unquote. That, but she doesn't know it's, he's an alien. She doesn't know what the hell's going on. Mm-hmm. And so she just knows her husband's come back. And now he's not himself. And she doesn't know what the hell's going on. She's got no pants on. She's got a nice little Mustang. She just wants to get out of town. She ends up with the Mustang with him. They end up going cross country. She ends up finding out things as she goes. And you're kind of relating to her character. But what I keep thinking about when I think about this film and one this rewatch is the grief that she's going through. She has to relive this grief all over again. She's, yes. She's processed some of this. And by processing it, you move on with your life, which is what you have to do. Because if you live in grief the entire time, you won't live your life. Um, that's just the way it is. But there's such a fine line between grief and love. Well, you want to know something? There's a line, and I'm going to quote something you don't love necessarily, but I really found it profound because I was going through a lot of grief. Whereas there's a line in WandaVision that uh-huh. Vision says. No, 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 no. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The line when he says, what is grief if not love enduring? That's right. right? That's right. It's correct. There is no such thing as grief if you don't love. That's right. You let it go, it's gone. Yeah. Grief doesn't exist if you don't love something. The only reason why grief happens to us is because we love things. Uh, be it a way of life, be it a favorite comb, be it whatever. If we're sad because we lose something, it's because we love that thing. And now it's not a part of our lives anymore, and we have to adapt to that. And that's a very human trait and a very tough thing. It's not completely human. We know elephants do it. We know whales do it. Yep. But And maybe some other species do it. We don't know for sure. But 
it's certainly it's certainly a part of our lives that I find fascinating as somebody who's over the last year went through a lot of grief in a different capacity, not over loss, but over loss of, you know, a relationship that fell apart. Uh, you know, for lack of a better word, I can talk about it a little bit more freely now. You know, it, it you go through all of these things of what you could have done better. Sure. But the truth is, you're a human being. You don't really know. If you're making mistakes, you don't know it. If your heart isn't, yeah, if your heart's in the right spot, you're not really ever making mistakes because the other person could be making mistakes or... You just don't know. And maybe there isn't such a thing as mistakes. Maybe it's just human beings. You know, we're flawed by nature. And we're learning. Yeah. And maybe, you know, in my case, maybe I learned that, you know, maybe it wasn't meant to be. I know that's a vague comment, but, you know, as I've gotten older and as I've went through this process, that's how it kind of feels. Maybe it just wasn't meant to be. Maybe what was supposed to happen happened. And I have to adapt to that and I have to adjust to that. Um. And I think that's what the interesting thing about the Karen Allen performance in this film is, is that she not only has to relive the grief, but it's an interesting idea to make her relive the falling in love. So she, yeah, so she's obviously forced to come to terms with the loss of her husband. And yet she gets thrust into this role where she's going, going through all these different stages again, like you said, where she's learning to love and, she also has to accept loss right? as part of that. Right. Let right. me tell you, psychologically, there's no way the Karen Allen character in real life could process any of what happens to her. No. <laughs> in this movie. No. She would be a husk by the time this was over. Uh, how can you process these inf- this information? You know, you, you lost somebody, you're grieving, the person comes back, you're grieving, you fall in love again, you lose them. I mean, it's just... It's unbelievable the kind of psychic Olympics that are going on here for her character. And that's why I think as much as Jeff Bridges deserves the nomination for this performance because it's it's, it's so bizarre and so interesting, Karen Allen really got overlooked here in her ability to play both sides of the coin. Yeah, because this her performance, as much as we've said Bridges could have, and listen, I do think Bridges deserved the nomination. Oh, he's, he's amazing. Yeah. Did, they both did for different reasons. She's got to do stuff that's a little more grounded in reality, and there's certain emotional complexities in what she's asked to do that in the wrong hands. So here's the thing. This is like a beautifully human experience for these actors. of Obviously otherworldly and fantastical, but at its core – the interest Carpenter has in this is the human experience of this and the emotional component to it. And for them to navigate through that and her to play it bruised, tender, vulnerable, uh, receptive to love and growth, uh, acceptance of loss, him to play this in a way, you know, he studied a lot of birds and things like that. And, you know, and for them to mesh, I think inherently you would have needed two actors that have a certain innate warmth and humanity to them. Because not every actor, even if they're a good actor or a good actress, could pull off these performances. Right. Yeah, they're they're terrific together in the film. And then you had the third wheel of the movie, which is Charles Martin Smith, who is a character we're also supposed to identify with in some ways. And he is interesting to me because what he's doing 
and what makes him interesting to me is he's finding his humanity as the film is going along. Yeah. He's finding that maybe he's wrong. Maybe his job has turned him into something that he's not. And he's finding his humanity. So in that way, this film is deep. Uh, and I think it really works. But those three central performances are great. Now, I don't know if Charles Martin Smith should have been nominated for an Oscar, but Charles Martin Smith is always good. He pops up in a lot of stuff. And he's yeah. always good. He's always good in everything he does. I really think so. Yeah. So let's get into the GGTMC elements of the film, which is this movie has a massive explosion budget. <laughs> oh, my God. Major explosion budget. You know what else explodes on the screen? It's how good Jeff Bridges is at doing Frank Sinatra karaoke. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Really good. Yeah. Yeah. That was a that was an interesting moment. Stop spreading the news or start spreading the news. Yeah. yeah. He's, uh, I mean, listen, he's he's got his his corner of uh, the karaoke room. Mm-hmm. Yep. But explosions, dude, the explosions front these are practical explosions. Oh, yeah. No, these are completely realistic explosions uh, and they're massive. They're massive. I mean, oh, wishes he had this explosion. Yeah, there, there's like, yeah, there's like, uh, I think three or four. All of them are huge. And uh, it's pretty impressive. It really is. And uh, they all work. The idea to shoot in the Midwest, I think, and, and the western part of the United States is very important. I think it it lends something to the film. Carpenter kind of known for moving around a little bit, but doesn't really shoot in the west as much as you would think. Um, or yeah, or daytime. Yeah, and there's a lot of daytime in this. Although there is a lot of nighttime too, but I, I I think that you know a lot of the stuff he does in this film is character driven, which is not something that Carpenter is kind of known for. Um, but arguably, those of us who love him probably think that's an incorrect statement because what I think Carpenter does better than most directors of genre cinema is he manages to find a way to create characters within the kind of craziness they're going they're going through. Yeah, I, yeah. I think about Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween. She stands out as far as the quote unquote final girl goes. I think about uh, Kurt Russell in Escape from New York. Um, he even stands out as the one man against many. Um, Hal Holbrook in The Fog, Adrian Barbeau in The Fog, ha- uh, John- Austin Stoker and Darwin Jostin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even Zimmer in Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Yeah, he gives. He always is able to inject humanity into his characters. You know what this reminds me of too? And I don't know if it's just the road movie in the Southwest feel, but it almost feels like Vim Vendors does a sci-fi road movie. (laughs) (laughs) The humanity of it, right? Yeah, no, it does. It does. It does feel that way. I think, you know, going back and like I said, going back and watching it, there are some things on the surface that I say, you know, Carpenter does Spielberg love story, but is it really about love or is it about grief? Or maybe it's about both things. Because again, love and grief go hand in hand. Yeah, I think going back and looking at it this time, it's just it 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 was it's probably Carpenter's most outside of the thing. Honestly, I think it's his most human story. Yeah, because uh, the that coin, right? Yeah, because the thing is about you know trust and belief yeah. as much as it is about an alien, right? Yep. Because uh, there's that great scene where they're testing the blood and stuff, and that that's important. The paranoia. Yep. And this one is about communication. I think what I've come away from this movie, not only about the grief and the love, but I think what's important in this movie 
is I think she gets a chance to communicate to her ex-husband in a way that she possibly couldn't communicate to him while he was alive. Yep. And I think that's very touching. And I think it means a lot to her character. I think it's surrounded by all these extraordinary circumstances, which, you know, makes the movie entertaining and makes it interesting. But I think ultimately on the surface, what this is about is falling in love, losing that love, and then getting an opportunity to explain why you love that person so much to that person, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a, you know, all of us would give an arm and a leg to spend one more day with our loved ones that we really miss. Yeah. Right. To, to explain to them how much they mean to us because they're gone. And the time that's passed that you've been able to yeah. process. Yeah. So it's, I think, and that's the, the message I think that is very interesting. Uh, and there's actually a very super pivotal line in here. I think that's very interesting to me because I've just been through a traumatic experience in my personal life that, I think Jeff Bridges' character says that, that he loves humans because we are at our best when we are going through our worst. Mm-hmm. And that is very touching to me at this point in my life because it's so true. When A lot of times we really find the humanity in things and the humanity in ourselves when we're going through the biggest moments of loss or the hardest moments we suffer as a person or as a married couple or as a family or anything. As a country, you can you can make it macro or you can make it micro. Um, but I I found the optimism. Like if if the thing is completed completely about the pessimism of humanity, then this movie is the complete polar opposite. Yep, it's the exactly. it's the it's the optimism of humanity and what we are capable of if we so choose to be so. And uh, it's really great. I just want to say, I'll kick it over to you. I really love the diner scene. I've always loved that diner scene. Yeah. It's hilarious to me. Uh, the stuff with the deer is very touching. It is, uh, yeah. It's all very beautiful. It's very well shot. And there's a great the, the great conversation there at the table and everything else. It has all the stuff in the... It's kind of a microcosm of the whole film in one little section. Because it has the comedy. It has the drama. It has a little bit of action. has some supernatural tidbits. Uh, the comedy part where he says shit when she puts the pie down or the cobbler down or whatever <laughs> still makes me laugh to this day. Yeah. And uh, it just, I don't know. I, this is this is a film where Carpenter really gets performed. It's really the performances outshine his filmmaking, but his filmmaking is still quite prevalent here. Like it's, it's, it's obvious that he knows what he's doing. It's very confident. It still works. It's gorgeous. And it really fits into his filmography in kind of a neat way. And uh, I'm so happy that he made this movie because it's it's aged incredibly well. Yeah. I think so. But I'll kick it over to you. I agree completely with everything you said, as usual. Uh, I'll just touch on a couple of things quickly. Um, I love some... <laughs> there's, there's some comedic bits in this, too. Like, they're driving and she's got to get gas. And he goes, how, how can car need energy so soon? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you know, or um, the line when she's telling him, you know, well, no, you eat that's dessert. You eat that last. And she goes sandwich first, dessert last. And he just goes, why? <laughs> and she's like, I, I don't know. It's just the way it is. But yeah, I mean, he's, he's 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 not wrong. 
He's not wrong. He's not <laughs> wrong at all. Not wrong at all. Um, I couldn't help but think that Joe Don Bake, Joe Don, fuck, here I go. George Buck Flower <laughs> looks like Joe Don Baker without his beard and the hairstyle in this film. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Joe Don, uh, Joe, uh, I'm doing it now. <laughs> George Buck Flower in this, almost unrecognizable at first. Until you hear his voice. Yeah, and he looks like he steps straight out of a 70s movie. He does. He doesn't have like the beard and the scruff or some weird beret or some dirty trench coat. He does have the Winston 100s, though. Oh, he sure does, man. Man, those are long, another, long cigarettes there. They're dart enthusiasts. <laughs> um, but uh, I'll tell you what. So there's a lot of really, there's a lot of emotional heft in this film. Um, and the moment, like the fear she has when he leaves briefly. And she says, well, you could have at least told me goodbye. Yeah. Right. And it's, uh, I don't want to get into it too much. There's a scene when she's talking about the honeymoon. What, what is a honeymoon and define love. And like, like that scene to me really got me. Yeah. That's yeah. just what works. Right. And, and like I said, I've seen this film a couple of times and yeah, you get older, you get a little more sentimental, but, um, you do, you do. I mean, it's a natural part of the human condition that we, you know, as we get older, we look on things more sentimentally. You know, we feel like we're going to live forever when we're 20. Of course. And then we're 30, and then we're 40, and then we're 50. And, I mean, it happens in the blink of an eye. And it's just, yeah. it is true we do find sentimentality as we get older in a lot of things. But, you know, I think for most of us with good hearts and good intentions, the realization that people and relationships and all of this stuff is temporary comes pretty quick. Yeah. For most of us, if we pay attention. You know, it does. It does. Um, I love, like I said, how they play off each other in this. Some of the little things. I love how he stares at her kind of intently, but it's in a very kind of odd way. <laughs> he's yes. trying to learn, but he's trying to listen. And he's just, it's it, a lot of this, the physicality from both of them in very different ways. Hers is a more nuanced thing because she's dealing with emotion and pain and grief, and love. And his is just, it's this observation and it just, one's pain, one's wonder, right? Right. And it's, uh, it's interesting to see those two sides. Um, the, the finale for sort of uh, movie sort of action, you know, for your, your action dollar, you get all these Chinook, choppers flying around the huge crater um it's pretty nuts you know it's a pretty nuts finish and we get to the end of the film and i'm certainly not going to reveal anything but there's just the there's this layered kind of poignancy of the ending for us as viewers you know with nietzsche's score which hits pretty pretty note perfect and and karen allen it's uh yeah this one you know i walked away from it and i picked it for all the reasons I knew I would like the, the things that resonated with me resonated with me when I saw it last, you know, how many years ago, but I felt it profoundly. It was one of those, I turned off the film and I immediately thought I want to go spend time with people I love. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, the things that mean most in life. And I think that's one of the reasons I love movies. One of the reasons I love film. One of the reasons you and I get up early on weekends is how that can stir our soul. Right. Right. So, right. Right. It gives us those reflective moments. We, we long for, we love, it's not nostalgia. It's, um, 
the it's what I believe Scorsese says the movies are dreams they're just they're moments to make us reflect on who we are and what we are and uh, that can come across all genres even Scorsese's dreaded comic book genre that can come on all genres and stuff if the stories are well told but this isn't new it's not just movies it's books and it's been since the caveman was painting pictures on a wall yeah. One of the things that makes us special as a species is we are reflective. We're able to sit down and talk about the things we've done and learn from the things we've done. And uh, we don't always learn from the things we've done. That's one of our flaws. But uh, a lot of times we do. And uh, I do think that the message of the film is very important, that we are at our best when we're going through our worst. And uh, it, it's been proven time and time again that when we are going through our worst, we tend to make our best decisions it's just really painful at the time (laughs) you know and it's really tough it's really tough and you know again i just want to say you know grief is tough on all of us you know and it comes in so many different forms come in the loss of a friend can come in the loss of a dog a pet bird uh getting over alcoholism uh getting into alcoholism i mean there's there's so many different ways the human being can react to things, but these are the things that make us human. And I think that that's what this movie really is. You know, it's really about, it's about explaining how important it is that we have these things. Oh my gosh. I was just sniffing on air. I'm so sorry. I thought I was muted. <laughs> I'm so sorry for that. So sorry to all of our listeners. <laughs> yeah. I was like sniffing vigorously and, uh, and I looked at the, I'm sorry to cut you off. And no. I was like, oh my God, I'm doing this as he's speaking <laughs> no, on air. It's okay. But it's just, it's true. It's true. I mean, it's it's a touching film and it's interesting. Out of all the films John Carpenter made, it definitely is, if you were talking about one of his that's a bit of a standout, this one, I don't mean in standout as far as like his great film, but it's certainly the the gem in his films that nobody talks about. It's the unearthed gem, so... Yeah. Is that all you got for it? That's all I got, man. All right. Uh, MVT, I was going to go with Bridges because I do agree it's an amazing performance. There's no denying that. Um, But the Academy gave him his kudos in that, and I don't think anybody gives Karen Allen any appreciation for what she does in this movie. I'm going to go Karen Allen, not to dissuade anybody from saying Jeff Bridges isn't amazing in the film. He is amazing in the film. But I'm going to go Karen Allen. Uh, because I I don't know that I'd ever be able to give it to her, Will, and anything else. I really don't. I mean, she's been in a few films we've done. She was in The Wanderers. She's in a few other things. But um, I don't know that I could give it to her for anything. Uh, the diner scene, I'm going to go diner scene. I really love that scene. Again, it kind of encapsulates the whole movie in that like 10 or 15 minutes. I really like it quite a bit. Uh, I think this film's a 8 out of 10 all day long. It might be an 8.5. I'm going to go 8.5. I really love it. It's one of Carpenter's unsung films. Check it out. It's amazing. Awesome. 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 We're pretty similar on all fronts here as usual. My make or break is that diner scene. Talked about the honeymoon moment and what's love and all these kind of abstract notions. How do you explain them? Right. And um, she's framing it in a way or basing it on the things that she loves, right? And it's just, you really feel it. There's an emotional resonance in the scene. Uh, MVT, I'm going to have my kick in it too. I'm not going to choose between Bridges and Alan. I'm going to give up to both of them. Uh, I think they're wonderful as standalone performances, and I think they're exceptional together with what they're asked to do. Um, it's really a shame that 
you know, bridges, like you said, got his flowers from the Academy and rah, rah, rah. But it's fun fact. He lost out to F. Marie Abraham for Amadeus, which I can't really fault. That's a pretty tremendous performance, but you know, whatever. Um, but Alan was so good in this film. So, so good. So I'm going to give it to those two to, together. Yeah. My score is is in between what you had first said and then what you said as your final score. I'm an 8.25 out of 10. Yeah. It's a really fantastic film. I think our listeners, if you haven't seen this, like you really owe it to yourself to check it out. And here's the fun thing. In sort of a case of serendipity, I picked this film. And then later the same day, I found out that Criterion is doing like a love retrospective and i swear our our idea to do it had nothing to do i didn't even we didn't even know about the criterion thing i, I found out that this is one of the films they're going to feature so you're going to get it on the criterion channel you can rent it on on itunes or apple tv i think prime has it different services so it's out there so it's interesting isn't it it is maybe it's going to get a big uh, proper release I don't know. I'd love. I'd love to get a better poster for the film. As much as I love them, I don't love the poster. Oh, I don't love that poster either. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's a better poster to be had. Sometimes you just you run across stuff like that. But I've seen a few posters that would be better. But the film definitely needs a better poster. Mm-hmm. It looks kind of. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that poster. It looks kind of wonky. It does not sell me on the film. <laughs> it does not. Got a couple posters like that. His his memoirs of Invisible Man poster is terrible too. Oh God, yeah. Yeah. Some of his other posters are more provocative and stuff. I don't love the Prince of Darkness poster. I never did, but at least no, it's, me neither. At least it's provocative, you know. It's kind of. But uh, this one, yeah, no good. Uh, okay, um, so that's our first film for Love Month. We hope you guys check it out. Uh, next week we're coming back. And uh, we're doing something a little different, but it is a love story, ultimately. Uh, I know, because I rewatched it last night. And uh, there's a lot of love in it, actually. Not just of Steel, which is the main reason why I went this way. But uh, there's a lot of uh, good stuff in there. Uh, we're going to be doing John Milius's Conan the Barbarian. This one has been uh, on my radar for a long time to talk about. This is a genre we don't talk about that much. Honestly, there's not a ton of quote-unquote great films in the genre but it is a fun genre to discuss and uh, I think we're going to have fun we both love John Milius I think we'll have a good time with this one um, looking forward to that discussion how long has it been since you've seen Conan the Barbarian it's been a really long time I, you know this is a funny one I meant to show this to my kids they love Arnold bit of a hard sell for that you know what actually I was going to say I'm wearing an Arnold t-shirt right now but I'm not um, it's probably been God, 20 years, 25 years. Wow. Yeah. So probably as long as it's been since I've seen Starman. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it'd been a while for me too. Like I said, I watched it last night and, uh, man, it'd been a long time. It'd been a long time. I, I, well, I'm going to say 24 years. I know exactly the last time I watched Conan the Barbarian. It was when the collector's edition DVD came out and that really? came out in 2000. I remember that. I remember that. I remember, I, and the reason why is because this was the one of the first ones. Arnie got paid big money to do commentaries on a couple of movies. Yeah, and uh, this was one, and Total Recall was another. And this I one, that. I got that disc, the Recall yeah, disc. Yeah, <laughs> this one starts out with a commentary, and it starts out with a really inappropriate Arnold Schwarzenegger joke, <laughs> which oh. I'll, I'll tell you off the air. Not. Yeah. <laughs> but it has to be a moment of embarrassment for him. And now I'll just say that <laughs> I, I just cringed as soon as I heard it. I was like, yikes. 
Anyway, um, that's what we'll be doing. That'll be sponsored by Arrow Video. They just put out a set for that and Conan the Destroyer, the much maligned Conan the Destroyer. I like Conan the Destroyer, but it's not right. Conan the Barbarian. But You know what's cool about us is everyone else is doing whatever for Valentine's Day for their programming. <laughs> we do Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, when you go back and watch it, you're going to be like, oh, wait a minute. I can't see what's his angle. Because I was watching it and I was like, I need to pick something for Love Month. And I had a couple things in my pocket and couple ideas and then i'm watching this and i'm like this is a this is a freaking love story yeah and you know i just didn't see it that way as a kid and as an adult it's a total love story so i was like he's gonna either he's gonna see me i'm gonna send it to him and i sent it and for those who don't know behind the scenes i sent him the text last night well the text last night and i said this is what i'm choosing and he was excited at first i thought he might be like conan why conan (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, but I think he kind of knew what the angle I was taking. So anyway, um, make sure to check out other podcasts, uh, night of the living podcast, chin stroker versus punter. Again, I didn't write them down. Like I promised I would, um, not a bomb. Watch skip plus love. Uh, see here. I want to say, I always want to say love here. See here. Uh, Mary clickers, feminine critique, Milano nine from outer space. Caliber nine from outer space. Caliber nine Milano from outer space. <laughs> sorry, Rob and Rob. Sorry, <laughs> you guys know what I mean. Hey, look, you know we're not. You know, I've been doing this a long time, but um, yeah. So check those out. I, I don't think I have anything else. You got anything else, man? Um, I don't have a ton more. Just uh, don't forget to check out um, John's. Uh, yeah, John's YouTube. Yeah, yeah, and Raiders of the podcast. While you're at it. And maybe, around. and maybe one day I'll write this shit down. We should, man. We but suck. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's part of the charm now. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, like, watch, so watch our, watch our memories deteriorate on air. Listen as we <laughs> go down the wormhole. <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> uh, anyway, best hour. We love all you guys. Don't worry we about do. it. Yeah. So, uh, with that, I will say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.